I have been assigned to uh, speak to you this morning on the subject of uh, finding and doing the will of God. And I have ten propositions that I'd like to float by you this morning, vis-a-vis -vis that subject. To uh, baptize us into it, however, I'd like to read one verse of Scripture which I will come back to later, I'm not quite sure where. But it's two verses out of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 12. And these two verses read in the New International Version as follows. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here comes the punchline. Then, then, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, my first proposition is this, and on some of these we will mention them just briefly and others will take more time, but my first proposition is this, that God does love you and has a fascinating and a tremendous plan for your life. Now, I did not say that Asbury College loves you and has a wonderful plan for your money. But I did say God loves you and does have a wonderful plan for your life. That being the case, God is more anxious to guide you than you are to be guided. God is more concerned that you know his will than you are concerned that you know his will. Now that's all that I'm going to say about proposition number one. But it's extremely pivotal for everything else that I'm going to share with you. Proposition number two. Jesus Christ found his highest fulfillment in giving himself over to doing his Father's will. Listen to these verses. My food is to do the will of him that sent me, Jesus. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me, 
Jesus. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him that sent me. Jesus. As a matter of fact, it dawns upon me that there is only one person in the entire universe who does not have to find his fulfillment by giving himself over to something outside of himself. Jesus finds his fulfillment not by doing his will, but by doing the will of his Father. The Holy Spirit does not find his fulfillment by talking about himself, but by glorifying another. Now those of you who've had me for 110 have heard me occasionally make a statement whenever we study Genesis 1, and when I first make it, you think I'm being tongue-in-cheek. My observation is put in the form of a question. Why is it when you read Genesis 1 that never one time do you ever read about Mrs. God? Why isn't she there? I am at least a, a semi-professional student of mythology, both ancient and modern. And every mythological system that I am aware of talks not only about God, but misses God. God and his spouse, his wife, his life partner. Why don't you read about Mrs. God in Scripture? Well, one of the implications of that is that God needs nothing outside of himself, including a life partner, in order to experience life's highest fulfillment. But Jesus Christ does need something outside of himself in order to experience his highest fulfillment as the second person of the Trinity, and that is submission to the will of his Father who sent him. And that leads me to proposition number three. If that is true of Jesus... If Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, experiences his highest fulfillment in life by doing the will of his Father, ought that not to be equally true of you and me? That we will experience our highest fulfillment not in doing our thing, but in doing his thing. That's one reason, incidentally, why I never like to hear people say that the will of God is something to which you surrender. Is Tommy Coker here this morning? 
Where are you, Tommy? Are you here? Tommy Coker's still a student here. He's got an exam at 11. Or he's praying for this chapel, one of those two. Well, I remember when Tommy was in Jessamine County High School, he was on the wrestling team. Short, but muscular. I saw that Tommy had muscles in places where many of us didn't even have places. Now, if you've got some big jack in the beanstalk who's got you in such a hold that he can pin you to the canvas, your only option at that point is to give up, to surrender. It's not something you're doing because you want to do it. It's something you are doing because it's all that you can do and you really have no other option, though you wished a thousand times that you could pin him. When a criminal is cornered by some policemen and there is no way of escape. He has to surrender. Why? Because criminals get joy out of laying down their arms? He surrenders because it's the only option. He hates doing what he has to do, but he has to do it. And wishes he didn't have to do it. And if the will of God is to you this morning something you have to do because you don't have any other option, but you wish you had some other option, then you're moving in the wrong direction. The will of God is not something we surrender to. The will of God is something we affirm. Because it's not God's worst option for you, it's God's best option for you. Proposition number four. It's more important for you to know God than it is to know God's will. Say it one more time, Steve. Thank you, brother. Okay. It's more important for you to know God than it is to know God's will. As a matter of fact, I would extend that to say, you will know God's will only to the degree that you know God. And if your knowledge of God this morning is minimal and marginal, then your knowledge of God's will will be minimal and marginal. I have a biblical illustration. I have many, but let me give you one biblical illustration of that. God came to Abraham and said, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home. And I want you to go into a land that I will show you. 
That's Genesis chapter 12. The New Testament counterpart to that is this. This is what Hebrew says about that. And Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. But he knew with whom he was going. I thought that that would be a good verse in the spring quarter for our seniors to adopt as a class verse. And they went out not knowing where they were going. That explains why you find Paul when he opens up a biographical page from his diary and he lets you and me in on a secret. And the secret that he lets you and me in on is this. What is his magnificent driving obsession in life? And Paul says that his magnificent driving obsession in life is that I might know God. That I might know Him. Not that I might know His will, but that I might know Him. Peter tells us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God. He doesn't tell us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the will of God, but grow in the knowledge of God. Proposition number five. The Bible never uses the word guidance. But it does talk about a guide. If you are trying to manipulate an automobile in rush hour and in rush hour traffic, driving through a city to which you are completely new and you have no idea of the layout of the streets, you have no idea how many blocks to drive and which intersection to make a right or a left, which do you prefer to have with you? A complicated set of instructions or a passenger who knows the way. When you first hit the College of Asbury or maybe even a larger university or the first day of registration and you have no idea what to do or where to go, which do you want? A campus map or a returning student to say, follow me and I'll tell you where to go. Proposition number seven. Six. Excuse me. Who's got a pen here? I, I miss, can't count. Number six, is it? Is it six? David, David says it's six. The will of God for your life is not so much some kind of a blueprint as it is a scroll that is being unwound bit by bit. Why is it not correct to compare the will of God to a blueprint? Let me create this scenario for you. President Oswald sends a note to all the faculty. Blueprint for the new gymnasium to be unveiled. We're all excited about this new gym. 
We're not sure when it will be built, whether or not it will beat the second coming or not, but we are excited about it. <laughs> and so we all gather together to see this blueprint. And dramatically, President Oswald strides to the overheads or whatever he's using, and he unfolds the blueprint. And we all gasp, because you know what that blueprint is? It's the left wall of the gymnasium and nothing more. Well, that's not a blueprint, is it? A blueprint gives you the whole picture. Where all of the walls are, and where the rooms will be, and what the dimensions are, and what the height will be, and what the substances will be of which this building will be made. I do not believe that God reveals that much of his will to you in that one big chunk. I get a little apprehensive when a freshman comes to me and says, this is what I want to major in, and this is what, uh, what I want to graduate, and this is what my GPA is going to be four years from now, and this is where I'm going to grad school, and this is whom I'm going to marry, and here are the names of our first five children. and discovering the will of God is, is not a once and for all thing. That now behind you, you can get on to other matters. Let me illustrate it for you. Look at this dear man down here at my right. One of our senior faculty. Dr. Lee Fisher. Dr. Fisher, when did you start teaching here? Eighteen when? No. <laughs> will of God and discovering the will of God is as much a concern for Professor Lee Fisher as it is for the greenest person up there in freshman land. It's an issue that none of us have put behind us. Proposition number seven. God's will for you has to do more with ethics than it does with geography. The majority of the times you read about the will of God in the Bible, it's not talking about your career, it's talking about your character. Let me give you a few verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. Just one chapter before it. This is the will of God. Zip. There you have it, right there, don't you? 
This is the will of God, Paul says. What is the will of God for you? Your sanctification. There you have it, over the organ. What's the will of God for you? Above the organ. Now let's face it. When most of us talk about finding the will of God, what we are really interested, at least at the college level, is what I call the M&Ms of divine guidance. A major and a mate. They melt in your heart, not in your brain. But I believe, listen, I believe it's possible for you to read the Bible four hours a day and do that for five years and on the basis of that never find out whether or not you should major in Spanish or in computer. I think you can read the Bible for four or five days or hours per day, and as a result, never find out precisely whether or not whom you should marry. The guidance the Bible gives you is primarily moral guidance. The will of God relates to how you should live and how you should behave. I'm skipping. Proposition number eight. These all flow out of each other, I hope. We need to obey God where he has already made his will known to us before we can think about obeying God in those areas where he has not yet revealed his will to us. For how, what is the use of asking God to guide us in areas where he has not been specific if we are not willing to follow him in areas where he has been specific? I'll give you an illustration. I don't know whether this ever reaches epidemic proportions on our campus, but I hope it doesn't. But I hear about it occasionally, and every time I hear about it, I, I'm nauseated. People feel it's the will of God, occasionally, to rebuke a Christian brother or a Christian sister by sending an anonymous sermon through the CPO. Now, if you've ever done that, because God has given us specific directions on his will on how you rebuke another brother and, and you won't find the CPO anywhere in the Gospels, at least anonymously. So if a person is violating God's clear will at one point where God has been expressly, transparently clear, How dare any of us ask God to guide us in an area where he has not been clear? Proposition number nine. You may disagree with this one, 
You may have disagreed with some of the others, too. In many decisions you have to make, God has no preference. Listen to this phrase. Rather, God invites you to consult your own sanctified preferences. Did you notice the qualifying adjective? God invites you to consult your own sanctified preferences. I don't think you really need to seek God's guidance on what courses you should take next quarter. In most instances. I don't think you have to ask God to tell you which dormitory you should live in. I don't think you even have to ask God which missionary board you should apply to. Which church should I attend? Should I send my children to a public school or to a Christian school? In many, many areas, God allows you to consult your own sanctified preferences. For finding the will of God is not asking God to make all your decisions for you. Any more than I'm helping my children to grow up when I make all their decisions for them. Please don't compare finding the will of God to walking on a tightrope. One slip, one mistake, you're gone. Now I compare it to a child learning how to drive a two-wheeler. I compare it to my son, my older son, the runner son, who's an absolutely tremendous cross-country runner. Was that Coach Brockington somewhere? And, uh, but who was a real learner this summer when it came to learning how to sail. He can really run a tremendous 10K, but, but handling a sailboat was, was something else. And so I, I coached him. I, I, I sat down on the shore in my sand chair with my iced tea. <laughs> and uh, we were up in northern Michigan at uh, Sault Ste. Marie uh, on the cold very cold waters of Lake Huron, and, and uh, it was interesting to see my son both learning and freezing at the same time. <laughs> but at some point, someone has to stop doing it for him. Well, I may let my child, when he's learning how to ride a two-wheeler, fall over and, and scrape his knees but I'm never going to let him ride that two-wheeler out in front of a truck. I'm going to let him make mistakes, but I'm not going to let him do anything foolish and fatal. And do you think God, if you're a father, he may let you make some mistakes, but he's not going to let you do anything fatal if you and he have an intimate relationship with each other. Finally, number ten. This is my main point. It has five points to it. Number ten. It's always the best way to get invited back to chapel. You don't finish. How does God guide us? 
I suggest five ways. Supremely, we find the will of God through saturating ourselves with the Word of God. And I place that first, people, for one reason, and for this reason. God will never lead you, God will never guide you to do anything that contradicts His Word. And so if you've got this standard underneath you, that's the place to begin. Secondly, God guides us through the merging and the converging of providential circumstances. Events come together in such a smooth way or in such a rocky way that they make a certain course of action either appear to be reasonable or unreasonable. But you need to be careful here. Let's say you were interested in majoring in computer science. You've never been to Asbury before. And you're flipping through it and you see there's a guy teaching computer science at Asbury called Bill Toll. You have no idea who he is. What he looks like, how tall, how short, how brilliant. But you say, God, if you really want me to major in computer science at Asbury, let the first guy I bump into be Professor Toll. And you bump into him. Uh, some big restaurant, Lou uh, McDonald's. Be very careful about relying on circumstances alone in telling you what to do and what not to do. I'll give you an illustration of that from Scripture. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, I must go to Jerusalem. And they said, no. You've misread the signals, Master. And he said, uh, why? He said, well, don't, don't you know, Jesus, that everybody's waiting down there, just laying low? They're, they're going to take you apart when you get there. All the circumstances are against you doing it. Now, if Jesus had relied completely on circumstances, he wouldn't have gone. But there was a higher driving force in circumstances, and that was his commitment to the will of God, which involved going to Jerusalem, which involved dying on the cross. I have two other illustrations which I'm going to pass on. Thirdly, God guides you through our reason, our self-reflection, are probing. I want to pick up something Commissioner Miller said last week, and he needed to add one more sentence, which he didn't. Remember he talked about Siggy and Miggy? And he turned to Jerry Forbes and he said, Jerry, or Forbes, as Commissioner Miller calls everybody by their last name, Forbes, let me ask you something about Siggy. Can Siggy program for me the will of God? And, uh, of course, it can't. But the further point that needs to be made is this. There is no built-in hostility between Siggy and the Holy Ghost. They are not hostile towards each other. God may use Siggy 
to reveal His will in your life. Just as He may use your involvement in an engagement discovery weekend to show you His will at that point. The fourth way is this, that God may direct us through the direct inner voice of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And finally, Scripture indicates to us that often we find God's will through other people. Proverbs says, in the abundance of counselors there is safety. I have two minutes to close out. Thank you. In the spring of 1970, I got a long-distance call living in Massachusetts. Would you hold the line, please, for Dr. Kinlaw? Same Dr. Kinlaw that spoke here yesterday. He said, um, would you be interested in coming to teach at Asbury College in September of 1970? I thought about it for a while. I had been thinking about it even before he called, and I said no. And there were two reasons why I said no, one of which I carefully told him, and one which I equally carefully did not tell him. And I'd brushed Asbury out of the picture for all practical purposes. And a year later, same spring, except now spring of 71, Dr. Kinlaw calls. I had written to 90 schools, at least 90, if not more than that, applying for a job after I was getting my Ph.D. Christian colleges, Bible schools, seminaries, secular schools, anything. And I know that I wrote to every Christian college, except one. You're ahead of me, aren't you? You know the one I didn't write to. This one. And here comes this call from Dr. Kinlaw. And he says, now Vic, he said, I know you turned me down a year ago. He said, but I... I haven't been able to get you out of my mind, and I believe it's the will of God for you to be at Asbury. And in September or August of 1971, I came to Asbury College to teach. Much like C.S. Lewis says he came into the kingdom of God, kicking and screaming, being dragged by his heels all the way. You know, I wasn't here two weeks until I said, thank you, Lord, for revealing your will to me through another believer. And God being my helper, I'll pour the rest of my life into this institution. God wants to guide you. Are you open to him? and doing his will, whatever that is.